Hi, my name is Jesse Cadden, and I've devoted my life to figuring out what goes into making great albums. I've produced over a thousand records, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present Inside the Album, where we get to go deeper on how your favorite artists have made the amazing albums in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the musicians and the team behind them that helped craft these records while getting to know the little secrets that go into making great music. In this episode, we talk about Matt Mason's debut EP, Bank on the Funeral. Matt Mason's music has been bubbling up into the mainstream over the past few years. In 2017, he started with his debut EP, Who Killed Matt Mason? And working through the hearse in 2018, the dark imagery in his storytelling has been catching listeners' ears and has now led up to him making a big impression on the world of alternative pop with his debut LP, Bank on the Funeral. I sat down in Atlantic Records Studios in New York to discuss how he got here, and as you're about to hear, I got one hell of a story. Well, my name is Matt Mason, and um, we'll start from the beginning. We'll start off on a dark tip. When I was about uh, four years old, almost five years old, my uncle was murdered. That definitely changed my family's lives. We were in West Virginia at the time, and we moved uh, after a couple years after that to Norfolk, Virginia. I played drums at the time when I was a kid for a long time because that's what my uncle did. But that really shaped my life, so I was very isolated isolated growing up and I started writing songs when I was about 15. That's when I figured out that I could actually sing. And so by that time I was very emo, obviously. Well, I mean emo as in just personality. I did listen to a ton of emo bands, but I wasn't allowed to listen to unchristian music for a long time growing up. My parents wouldn't let me listen to that stuff. Probably for good because, you know, going through all that stuff, you know, it was, it was, I was already depressed as it is. But yeah, I started writing music when I was about 15. I wrote my first song. I remember it was called Time to Say Hello. I can't remember what it was about, but I remember the lyrics were Time to Say Hello. <laughs> Kept writing music and just learning random covers. The first cover I learned was... Plain White Tees, Hey There Delilah, which is kind of a bummer. It's not the best first song to learn, but... And then I, you know, obviously learned some of the classics like Wonderwall and, like, songs like that. Growing up and going through all that stuff, I obviously, you know, felt like I had a lot to say, and I started writing more as a therapeutic thing, as I could... For some reason, I could articulate the way that I was feeling through music you know, and the words I write to music more than I could just talking. And I'm still like that, honestly. And so, yeah, I just started pouring my heart out into into the songs I wrote just for me. And I always did want to be like a rock star one day. My ideal thing was I either wanted to be a professional skateboarder, that clearly did not work out. I wanted to be a stuntman or I wanted to be a rock star. That one's starting to work out. Hopefully it keeps going. Yeah, I just kept writing songs that meant something to me. And then by the time I was 17, I played my very first show, which was at a Chick-fil-A open mic night. And uh, I won because those kids sucked. I sucked too, but they were just really bad. And I won. I was like, oh shit, this is crazy. And I won Chick-fil-A for a year, which is sick. That went away in about three months because all my friends are poor and they would just jack the coupons that Chick-fil-A gave me. And then from there, I just kept trying to, you know, play whatever shows I could around town and started playing like just different like little clubs. And it was funny because I would play like in Norfolk and Virginia 
Beach, there's a pretty big hip hop community and a lot of like pretty sketchy clubs. And I would go in as this like little 17 year old white kid with a fro and play these emo songs and people were into it. And so I was like, man, if I can convince these crowds, then, you know, there's something to this. Unfortunately, something happened along the way that made this story get a little rocky. After that is when I started to get in a bit of trouble. I turned 18 and I moved out of my parents' house the day I turned 18. And I just started getting into all sorts of stupid, stupid shit. And then I started doing some drugs. And then I started selling those drugs. And I started getting arrested. I got arrested for breaking and entering. And I was put on probation for a year. And with only a week left of that probation, I got arrested again, which is a big no-no. So then I got put on two years probation and six months supervised probation. So then I was like, okay, man, I got to figure my life out. So I moved away from all in in a spurt of 18 year old wisdom. I decided I'm going to move back to one of the towns that we lived in away from all these people that I'm getting in all this trouble with. And I'm just going to work pay off these court bills, do my community service, and just be done with all that. And so I moved to Gloucester, Virginia. I worked construction 70 hours a week. My only day off, I would do 10 hours of community service. So it was like a gnarly summer. I got deeper into using drugs in that period, which is crazy because I was on supervised probation, so I had to pee in a cup for six months, and they would test me for it. Finally, I did get through that, and I passed all my probation. After that was a real, like, okay, like, what do I do with my life? Like, I do want to do music. And so I hopped in my car with a buddy of mine, and we traveled the country for a month. We left with, like, 500 bucks in our pocket, and we would just, like, just work random jobs or find ways to get money on the road. Once that stopped, I was like, all right, man, I really want to start going for music so I joined my parents prison ministry they started a prison ministry where they go to like obviously a ton of prisons and then like biker rallies like Sturgis and Daytona Bike Week and basically places that a lot of people in the church won't go and a a lot of places where the people that they that my parents you know minister to are people that are treated like monsters or outcasts or you know people that you know the church typically wouldn't want to be around at all. And that was very inspiring to me. And I would play those shows and I would go into like prisons, which is like one of the darkest places like in the world. Like it's just so dark in there and there's so much like, it's like you get arrested and thrown in jail for like being a monster and then they treat you like a monster for the rest of your life. And it's like, what is the point of that? So it's such a dark place. And I would just see my parents go in there and I would go in there and play music and just see how much of a light that would shine over these dudes that are clearly just completely fucked up in the head and they need help. And so when my parents would go in there and I would go in, I would just see how much music can really affect you. Like it can affect your emotions, your entire life and us just taking the time to like show them love and show them, you know, that they are loved and, you know, playing my songs that about me feeling misunderstood, they related to that because they obviously feel misunderstood. And I did that for about three years. And then I decided I want to, you know, finally go. I feel like I'm stable enough to like make a career out of this. And I moved back to Virginia Beach, Norfolk area and got a desk job and just worked with my buddy Ross for a couple months, made a song with my friend Masego, put it on SoundCloud and that started going crazy. And then we put out another song that started going crazy. And then six months later, I was signed to Atlantic Records. About here is where Matt meets up with Neon Gold Records, which is a subsidiary of Atlantic Records, 
I'm going to let Derek Davies, who's A&R there, talk about his side of the story. So I found Matt by complete chance. We've got a different discovery story for every artist we've worked with. They're all unique, and Matt's was perhaps the most, the most unique of all of them. Um, I followed a songwriter called Mark Johns, an artist and songwriter on Twitter, who posted a 10-second snippet of her covering um, a song called Melons. Um, and I, I thought it was an interesting top line with a really like unique lyric and hook. And so I clicked through and I listened to it a few times. And then I saw that it, she said it was a cover of an artist called Matt Mason. So I clicked through to his page. Uh, and it was a song called Melons that he put online in, I guess it was early 2016. And it was an acoustic singer-songwriter, just like classic, like Matt with an acoustic guitar. And I just kept coming back to it like day after day, week after week. And and Matt's in a space where he's very different from a lot of the artists that we've become known for. And we work with like kind of big left-leaning alt-pop females, but like a, a more like developed pop sound. And Matt's a more kind of classic singer-songwriter. So at first I, was, I just felt like something that I, I liked that I wasn't necessarily thinking was the traditional neon gold kind of sound. But I came back to it over and over again, and then after about a month of that, he put another song online called Gravedigger. And I was like, oh, this is this song's ready to go. This is like a fully realized and like big song that like put a mix on it and you could take it to radio tomorrow. I mean, that voice just stops you in your tracks. But more than that, it's he's got just this unique writing ability and his own deeply personal take on lyrics that like you hear a Matt Mason song and songs like Cringe and Hallucinogenics and I Just Don't Care like those are Matt Mason songs and those are that's no one else like you can't imagine anyone else in the world writing that song and that's what makes him special and that's what we we've been known for a certain sound over the years with Neon Gold but really what we look for more than anyone is you know who has that unique singular voice and who has who releases a song and it's like oh that's this artist and that is no one else and Matt has that as much as any other artist on the roster if not more one of the interesting things about neon gold is you don't often hear about community and pop music but here derek explains how big a thing it is for this label i emailed him and we hopped on the phone and i don't think either matt nor i neither one of our preferred uh, method of communication is is the phone and we talked for like over an hour and i was in london at the time and um he was from norfolk virginia i grew up in dc so just a few hours from norfolk so we just talked a lot at length about everything his backstory our backstory and it just felt like a connection and at the time we were just starting to put together our first writing camp in nicaragua that was happening in like 10 days and it, it was all artists from our immediate family who we'd worked with for a considerable amount of time or you know had really strong relationships with but i just kind of got the feeling with matt and, I, and I, I emailed him the next day and i was like listen like this is crazy because this is in 10 days and it's in nicaragua a bunch of people you've never met before but would you want to come down and do this and he was like shit man like i i'd, I'd love to but like I, I don't have a passport right now and obviously 10 days notice is too quick to get that together so that didn't happen but we ended up obviously staying in touch and meeting up as soon as i got back to the states a few weeks later and Matt came to New York and happened to be in town for last night at my old apartment, which had been become like a social hub for Neon Gold, where like all of our artists crashed on their first ever tours. It's like Charlie XCX. I met her when she was crashing on our our couch. 
over around her first shows that we promoted in New York. Mumford and Sons stayed on there on their first tour. Group Love Walk the Moon. It kind of like was this mini Chelsea Hotel for like mid two thousands alternative pop, um, but with a bit less drug use. Um, <laughs> and uh, so you know he happened to be in town for our last night there before we moved on. So uh, we had a meeting with him at our office and then invited him on by. And it just felt like this kind of seismic event where he just he met a lot of uh, artists already in our kind of family and our network. And so we kept in touch from there. And a few weeks later, we started like the deal conversation. And everything just moved the way you hope these things do. Like the negotiations part of the signing process is always the worst, but it felt like everyone was like transparent and for the right reasons and it made sense from the start and it, everything moved along pretty painlessly. And we got to the finish line of it right as we were scheduling our second writing camp in Nicaragua. The first one had been such a success, success that we wanted to get that same group back down there as soon as possible later that summer. And so we went down there for that and Matt, Matt was excited to come, but he came in there kind of being like, listen, like I, you know, I don't really, I'm excited to write songs for other people. Like, I don't really bring other people into my own writing process. And we were like, yeah, man, like, you know, the beauty of this thing is it's a very open-minded thing. It's, we like to let things happen organically. If the song makes sense for you, great. If it makes sense for another artist at the camp, great. If you want to pitch it out, that's fine too. Like, we kind of go in with no pretense and see what happens. So he was pretty set on writing for other people and kind of keeping his own stuff out of it. And he'd never written with anyone before. And that's the beauty of Matt. He's a hundred percenter. Like, he, he can take it from start to finish himself and write the whole thing on acoustic guitar and it can be incredibly compelling including when he's playing it live like his first three tours were just him solo acoustic on the guitar so the first session I put him in like the way these camps worked we would rotate groups of three or four writers together working in different groups each day and so each group would get a song a day so you'd, you'd leave with you know, 15 and 20 songs across the 12 people who were there by the end of the week. Um, but the first day, I decided to start Matt out. Just He'd never written with anyone before, collaborated in that capacity. So we put him one-on-one -on -one with a British writer who was now living in L.A. who we'd become quite close with called James Flanagan, who just struck me as like you know, kind of the perfect fit for Matt. And they just instantly connected. They just really hit it off. And Matt went into the session you know, pretty dead set on not writing for his own project and came back being like, hey, James, my guy. James is going to be my guy for the entire project, all in the space of about eight hours. That day they wrote a song called Lockdown, which is still one of my favorite songs. It's not on the album, but I'm sure it'll find its way into the world somehow. But yeah, it was just kind of an instant connection. And, you know, since then, James, James did, in fact, become his guy. And James produced every single song in the album and wrote or co-wrote um, just about all of them with Matt. Although Matt, Matt, for the most part, you know, wrote every song on the record 100% himself and then brought it to James to bring to life. So James might help with a bit of writing and arrangement here and there. After all this talk about James collaborating with Matt, I wanted to hear his side of the story. He's a seasoned producer and songwriter who's worked with artists like Andrew McMahon, Carly Rae Jepsen, Haley Kiyoko, and many others. Here he is talking about how he came to work with Matt. Derek, who's actually the guy who found Matt, he's really on the pulse. He's, some, he's kind of got that old school scout blood in him where he just still finds people on SoundCloud when they've had one song up or whatever. And he put me on to Matt pretty early on because in our whole group of friends, I guess he figured like this was more my vibe. That's how we kind of find artists in our network. We just like tip off friends and stuff. And he sent a song of Matt's my way. And I was just like, I was, I was into it. I was like, this is the kind of like artist I'm looking to work with at the moment. And he managed to get hold of Matt who was working a day job and he sent him to a writing camp with us. It's a really bizarre experience. So it's kind of funny to see Matt turning up a bit 
rabbit in headlights kind of situation of just like what are all these people doing here and and they all just write songs in the morning with each other and they're strangers and this whole thing but i guess i was a little sensitive to that because i saw that he's more of a introspective songwriter and that kind of scenario is quite intimidating i mean it's intimidating for me i think it's intimidating for for everyone to a certain degree but um yeah we got in the room and i think I chose this method of really just letting Matt do whatever he wanted to do. And if it led to nothing, then I wanted to present that as an option in the room as well. Because these scenarios, like, they're so cool, this whole writing camp situation. But if you can balance the inorganic process with... I just wanted to be sensitive to it, basically. Because I saw he was scared and I saw he was skeptical about like what goes on at these places and who all these people are running, wanting to write songs for him. He did really well and I just kind of rolled with it that day and we wrote a cool song. And I think we both realized we could do cool shit together if we just spent a few weeks together in a room. We heard about this writing camp before. So Matt's going to tell us a little bit about who else was there, as well as some of the other collaborators he met there. James Flanagan, Carly Rae Jepsen, Captain Cuts, Kyle Shear, Nate Campany, Phoebe Ryan, just a ton of, of really, really talented artists that they would ju- we would just go into different like cabanas and work on songs. And so I met him. We had a session, just me and him one day, and we wrote this song called Lockdown. I don't know if that'll ever come out, but we loved it, and I just loved working with him. And that was actually the same Nicaragua trip where I wrote Go Easy with Captain Cuts, which is coming out on the record. And that was two years ago. So that's where I met him. And then by the time we got to the point where we wanted to track the EP and everything, I was like, I want James Flanagan. You know, I want to work with him on it. So I moved to LA and we just recorded everything in his studio over the span of like two weeks, three weeks. Well, I come a long way from the trips and the shaky hands. If you're looking down on me, I could really give a good goddamn. A lot of miles out of folds, I'm still finding out who I am. A lot of miles out of folds, I'm still finding out who I am. That's now going to talk a little bit about how his two previous EPs helped shape this current LP. Well, originally we were going to do one EP and then the album. That's like the original deal I signed with Atlantic. So we put out that first EP, which is basically Who Killed Matt Mason. Like the idea of that is there were parts of myself, uh, parts of everybody that, you know, growing up, becoming an adult, there's parts of yourself you have to theoretically kill and parts of yourself that you have to grow and water and give time to if you want, you know, depending on who you want to be in life. So that's what that was about. And then we decided we wanted to do another EP just to, you know, get momentum going in my career and fan base. So by the time I do put out an album, I have, you know, a stable foundation. I think it's awesome that we did that. At first, I was against the idea because I I wanted to just go straight into the album. I had a lot to say. But looking back, it was such a, like, therapeutic experience writing The Hearse because, you know, if Who Killed Matt Mason was, like, years 18 to 21, The Hearse was years 21 to, like, 24, which were just as impactful in my life as, as Who Killed Matt Mason. And going into the album after that, it's kind of like, it's weird. It's just like it, it, it all came together at the perfect time. And there's songs from the EPs on the album, too. There's three songs from the EPs on the album because I think they clearly define up to now that entire period rather than just these years, these years. It kind of defines my life from 
really being like six years old to now. Many artists see the borders of their music as the things they don't want to do, and that will often define their sound more than most things. I asked Matt about how that affects his music. I think that used to happen a lot more. Like, I think if I heard Go Easy when I was 19, I'd be like, I could never do that. Like, that's like, that's straight pop. In my mind, like, even making that song, I was like, this is a pop song. And now people are like, dude, love the new folky vibe. And I'm like, what? Like, that's crazy. But now, less less now more than anything. Now when I hear that stuff, I, I see it as more of a challenge of like, okay, how do I adapt my style and my lyrics and my thoughts to this you know, different kind of, I don't know, brand or sound. Growing up writing songs, I always envisioned myself like with a band. So when I would write songs, I would write that with that in mind. So the dynamics, you know, would change from a typical acoustic song. You know, it'd be like quiet, 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 build up, build up, and then boom, like really loud. It's kind of unintentional, but a lot of my songs do that. And it creates for just, I think, a lot more emotion through the sonics of it rather than just the lyrics and the melody. I then asked James about how the process goes when he gets one of Matt's songs. It's really interesting. I've never actually worked with someone in this way before, but it's quite exciting. What he does, He'll send me voice memos and he'll send me maybe an entire song or maybe it's a one and a half minute clip of something really exciting. And being able to be involved, even though he's written it by himself, being able to combine that with being involved with the very inception of the song, like hearing the energy of the very first idea really helps me realize what I can't lose if I'm going to produce this record. I'm like, okay, whatever this raw bathroom reverb energy is on this voice memo, I can't screw this up and make it too clean. But it's it's funny because by the end of the album, we, we were so familiar with working in this process of him bringing me a raw track like that that we kind of just had a muscle memory thing going. It was always relatively delicate. I would be, and every song was a problem. Every song was like, how do I make this really amazing raw sounding thing produced in a way that's exciting and not ruin the essence of it? I mean, that's the same problem with everything. It's it's the same problem with great singer-songwriters like that. I guess I would try and capture just the vocal and guitar again from the bottom up. And often he would leave and I would just produce and produce and produce until I found it was exciting and I hadn't deleted the energy that he'd brought in the room. But I guess that was a lot of that was me alone in the the studio losing it a bit and waiting until I felt I had the start of something that I could play Matt. And now here's Matt talking about how he sees the process from his end. Working with James Flanagan, who I work on everything with, he produces pretty much all of my stuff. We basically, I wrote most of the songs on an acoustic guitar, either in my bedroom or wherever. And then we go in to his studio and we just track out the acoustic and then we just build from there. So he'll do a lot of the programmed work and then I'll do a lot of the instrumentation and we just kind of bounce off each other. We'll pick a song and work on it for like eight hours one day and then move to a next song and then kind of bounce back and forth between so it's pretty like I hate saying it's organic because everybody says that but it really is it's just like writing these super serious in-depth songs and having a lot of fun building the like environment that they live in most times I have the song fully written before I go in it's pretty rare that I don't but it is it does happen sometimes I can't remember specifically what songs that has happened on I know I went in and I finished the mask 
with James Flanagan. And I had written the first verse and the second verse, and we wrote the bridge together. And that was actually here in New York. Like 90% of my songs, I write the whole song before we go into the studio. But 10% of the time, I do write a little bit of it, or a lot of it, and we go in and we, we finish it. Whenever I do a co-write, I go in with an idea, or like a verse, or like a course, and then we build around that. With 2,000 voice memos to choose from, I was a little curious about how often they start a song, but it doesn't work out. I mean, we've had songs that we've produced all the way up and been like, we don't like this anymore. Because I have like 2,000 voice memos in my phone right now of just different song ideas. It's less often do we actually like sit there and produce up a song and then scrap it. It's more of just taking all these different ideas um, and figuring out which ones we actually want to go with. So it's pretty rare actually for us to pick a song, be like, we're doing the song, produce it up and scrap it. And there's probably only like five songs that we did that with and then there's so many songs that we just didn't actually go in the studio and start the songs that i worked on by myself and wrote and then songs that i went in sessions and wrote with other people that we haven't used and there's a ton of those songs that i'm thinking about using for the next record but i just have such a like it's good and bad i'll sit down and i'll write 45 seconds of a song and then just forget about it and move on so like now i'm at the point where i can just like scroll through my voice memos and then stop and like pick something to work on, so it's kind of cool. Matt's music often deals in very dark and heavy subjects, and is heavy on the cinematic descriptions inside his lyrics. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the vibe when him and James record together. Uh, every studio he's had has been in his house, so it's like super relaxed. Like I hate working in even the Atlantic studio. It's just like office vibes, man. I feel like there's like a lack of creativity in it. We did the second EP in his studio in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, and then when it came album time, that was a little more sporadic because now I'm at the point where I'm touring all the time, or I'm doing press things, or I'm doing you know whatever else. So we would do like a week. I would fly out, do whatever I had to do, and then we do another like four days, fly out, do whatever I had to do and then you know kind of did it like that so it came together a bit more choppy and I was really worried about it not having a cohesive flow to it all the way up until the point we got all the mixes back and then I listened to it straight through once we picked the track list and I was like man this is awesome man I was really happy with it there's often a myth about the cookie cutter factory that major labels are so I wanted to talk a little bit about the influence of outside collaborators on this record with Matt I kind of wanted to be left alone in that sense because I had made the EPs and I was like, all right, man, like I know how to, you know, do this in a sense. And I really only take that kind of advice from my close friends and, and like James Flanagan, my producer, and my buddy Roswell, who's also an artist, amazing artist. But then, yeah, there's obviously like the A&Ring, like Molly Lehman is my A&R, and then um, Pete Gambarg like was involved in the album and had a lot of good things to say. Just like little things too, just like, what if you put the pre-course here? Or like, what if you repeated this part here? And like, it makes the song so much better. And here's James talking a little bit about how he saw the process go down for himself. It was a really interesting, weird record in terms of having, we had ultimate creative freedom and there were no boundaries, but also I kind of, I felt like I could do anything and Matt and me really trust each other. And it was rare towards the end that I would do something that didn't work for the song and that he didn't like. But what worked? I think I found a lot of the time, every now and then, when maybe I was trying to make something that was more radio-friendly or something, I would I would do it without bringing it into the room. I would just think in my head, I was like, why don't I try to do that today? I think if I didn't have the vocal and the guitar completely nailed already, 
we would just sit there meandering on track stuff for a while. And and we would always end up being like, why don't we just track every vocal for the song? Why don't we layer the entire dynamic of the record without anything other than guitar and layers and layers of vocals? And then don't think there's a case where it didn't just flow subconsciously after that. It was just easy. It was just like you didn't even have to think about all these problems like what kick drums sound or what like whether we are okay experimenting with a synth here or not. It just always worked around his vocal. And it's so simple and everyone, like, I'm sure, like, many producers will say, like, that's the key to anything. But we try it the other way a lot of the time, and it just didn't work. Like, maybe starting with a cool track or something never worked. Starting with, like, just a, a really cool beat or something. And we would try it. I never closed the door on any of these other more pop, contemporary kind of approaches to producing a record because it could work the next time we do it. But in general, it only worked if we started with every vocal and the guitar and then just added things as we needed them. And there are a few, which is cool. There are a few couple on the record where we didn't add very much. And at the moment, they're actually my favorite. <laughs> well, it's interesting because like, I did this record years and years ago, one of the first albums I ever did. And it was for an artist who'd kind of made a name for herself just doing guitar and vocals. And she'd got quite a big following. And I was to produce the first pop record, I guess, as it was. And it did well, but I felt like I'd lost the essence of the person sitting in their bedroom that was coming up with this stuff and sharing it with me in this room. So I think that was the goal with this, to make sure we never deviated too far. And there are some really big tracks. There are some really produced tracks, but it's all co- like driven from him. Lover, come over. Look what I've done. I've been alone so long. I feel like I'm on the run. Lover, come over Kick up the dust I got a secret Speaking of some of the outside advice Matt got, Derek's now going to tell us about the hit song Cringe and how it became the second song on Bank on the Funeral. It was around the second or third time I'd met Matt as we were like starting to enter the deal process. He sent me a batch of demos that he'd written, and he always writes his demos, just their iPhone voice notes, so they're pretty crude, but like when, he, when he's got something, you can tell he's got something. He sent me this, this one-minute-long voice a note of cringe, which was in, at the time it was just a verse and a chorus. And he'd written it, I think, a year before that and hadn't really had any intention of finishing it off. But it was like this one-minute verse chorus that I was driving myself crazy just going back, listening to over and over and again. And I was like, dude, you got to finish that. Like, you got to, like, I need to hear the rest of that. And, you know, a week would go by and two weeks would go by and I'd text him again. And I, I don't really know the kid at this point, but, like, I just must sound like a, a super, super fan. And so he finished it and sent it back. And it's just like, oh, wow, it's blown away. Like, this is the first single. This is very clearly it. A few weeks later, that Nicaragua trip happens, and a few weeks after that, we get him in with James to bring Cringe to life, and they just instantly knocked it out and instantly clicked, and we sent it to this mixer, Jonah Mahani, and he absolutely knocked it out of the park on mix one, and just all of a sudden that song came together so quickly. And Matt likes to tell the story live now about how it's a song that he you know, had never planned to finish until his A&R heard it and hounded him like a psychopath until he finished it just to get me off his back. And now he likes to point out that it's all over the radio and it's 
the reason that he's playing a lot of the rooms he's playing today. But he also likes to also point out that um, just because he was wrong does not mean that I was right. And here's James talking about the experience of making Cringe. They all had their revelation moment. The first song we ever produced, I don't know if Matt mentioned, but it's Cringe. And it's the one that is on the radio right now. And it's really cool that that's the first one that's out there on the radio, like being making the rounds, because that whole process was a lot of me and him looking at each other, figuring out if we trusted each other creatively. And uh, it was the baby steps. But we had it was a real breakthrough moment, seeing how heavy we could go and seeing that we... Seeing that we, c- I could do huge production stuff, which is what I like doing. I like doing big wall of sound things, and you'll notice that if you listen to the album. It's a lot of wall of sound stuff. But I noticed that, and this is kind of similar to what I said before, but if these huge guitars and these huge basses and these huge drums were all kind of in unison with his guitar stabs, and they were all following his vocal melodies, really like guided by it, then it didn't feel like production that was taking over. And that was that was a breakthrough moment on that first song of realizing how we could make this huge and still sound like it's focused on one guy. And we deviate that through that on some of the records where we do instrumental stuff or whatever. My own reflections making me sick. I've been this way since my faith quit And I never asked for this pain It's taking me over It's taking me over Earlier, we heard Matt talk about the song Go Easy and making it with the producer group Captain Cuts. I wanted to get him to talk a little bit more about that process. So there's two songs that I co-wrote with Captain Cuts on the record. That's Go Easy and Tread On Me. Captain Cuts are these three dudes. It's so fun to work with them because they all produce, they all play instruments, and they're all writers. So you go in and they basically just keep each one of them hops on the computer like at different times as you're writing the song and keeps like producing little things. So by the time you leave the session, it's like you have a full produced song. That was the first time I ever experienced number one, co-writing, and number two, just like being around super professional people. I was still working that desk job at the time that I took that trip. So it was just such a cool experience. And we, I left that just thinking, man, like I can actually do this, you know? And what had happened is we were out all night drinking. We all woke up like so hungover. And we went into the session and we just, that was the first time I met them too. So it's a little awkward and you're hungover and you just don't care. We sat around for at least four hours trying to write something. And whenever you're like forcing it, it sucks. And we just couldn't write anything. And then finally, Ryan McMahon from Captain Cuts played a little riff on the guitar. And I was like, that's sick. And I started writing lyrics to that. And then it just started folding together. And within like two hours, we had Go Easy. And we were just all just like, this is a hit, dude. This is such a good song. And then that was two years ago. So by the time we actually got in the studio to do the album, we had to like, we wanted to reproduce it and everything because it was obviously in the sticks in Nicaragua. It didn't sound great. And so we collaborated with Captain Cuts and James Flanagan and we just went back. There's so many versions of that song. It's insane. The actual structure of the song has remained the same. But we've definitely changed a ton of the sounds in it. And then we would do things to it, send it to Captain Cuts. They'd be like, we don't like this, but we like this, and we'll do this. And they send it back, and we would just go back and forth. And then they sent, like, a totally stripped version, and we loved that. But we were also like, we need a 
heavier version. And we kept going back and forth. And then we sent the song to Atlantic and Pete Gambarg actually had the idea of like throwing the pre-chorus underneath the last chorus, which made it sound so much bigger at the end. And then you get into mixing and that's back if we went through like 14 mixes of that song. It's crazy. Like there were ones everybody would like and I would hate or that I would love and everybody else would hate. It's so weird how it works. And that's one of the songs that took the longest to actually nail down one that we all collectively liked. And that's the version you hear now. Next, Matt's going to talk about bringing Beggar's Song to life. Beggar's Song I wrote at South by Southwest two years ago. I wrote the first verse in the course of that song at South by, and it was just like... Everybody, I, I just got off a tour. I had just had a night that I just did a ton of things that I really regret. And I was just very depressed. And I was like just over the whole party thing. And I was just like, man, I don't want my life to be like this anymore. So everybody was partying. And I was like, I'm going to go back to the hotel room and just write. And I wrote that bit of that song. And it like made me cry. It's like, it's, it's very, it's like a psalm in a way. Like it's just kind of a confession and a desperation for you know anything that can help and that song just kind of sat there for a while until I took that trip to upstate and I met Simon and Simon is such a like he's just like a shaman dude and he just brings it out of you and I showed him that clip of that song and he loved it and at that point I think I'd written the second verse too and we just kind of workshopped it there for a while and I wrote the bridge to it there and then we had that song in the bag for a while, too. And then I went in, like, probably six months ago with James Flanagan, and we actually tracked it out. We got a dude to come in and play the trumpet on it, which is sick. What's crazy about that song is we finished it, we wrote it, whatever. When I was on that South By trip, wrote it, I met this guy, Weston Rizzoli, who came to just shoot some of the gigs that I was playing there. And he was such a cool dude, just kind of out there, but like so creative and someone you just want to hang out with. He was awesome. And he, he filmed a couple of the gigs and we said it parted ways. And then come two years later, like a month ago, we filmed the music video to Beggar Song. And the person that we picked to do it was Weston Rizzoli because he works really well with film. And I wanted everything to be film oriented. And here's James talking about how they fleshed the song out. Beggar's Song was one where I I has I tried to hazard a guess at how we were doing it as soon as we did it. And I'm really proud of that one. I think Matt's really proud of that one too. But that was one where, and this is how most of the songs would start when we're producing. He would play it to me and I'm like, dude, this time let's just like, let's just keep this just raw. Just you and the guitar. And then we'd find ourselves like producing a huge track. But that one was a really big breakthrough moment because... It was anthemic and it was bright and it was the most hopeful song we'd done. So opening the door to real, like a real drum kit in a room and a real trumpet player coming in just had this new light on Matt's songs that we'd never had. And I think it was a friend of mine that listened to it as we were working on it. He was like, we get some brass on that. And it completely transformed the end of this. And it was the first time we've had this euphoric climax because up till then we'd been 
really diving into these heavy, dark, sinister endings. We haven't actually spoken about this. Maybe I wonder if it's the same for him. But when we felt great about having such a, I don't want to say happy, but it was such a hopeful, light climax to a song, made us realize that we can go other places emotionally with the climax of these records. And that's a huge, that's a huge moment for a new artist. Cause we, we were finding an autopilot with like some of the ways we, what our end point of an epic song was. And this one really opened the door to a much happier emotion, I guess. And I think it might pave the way for the, the some of the records on the next album. But that was a huge breakthrough moment. Real instruments and brass and just big gang vocals like that. It was it was really cool to to try that out. And that I think I think that helped with legacy. We used some of the same brass as well. It was it was a nice kind of uh, light and shade for the record having those two tracks. I found a way I could catch that feel good Sky's been turning, fire's been burning since 93 Next we're going to talk about the song Feel Good and how his faith plays into his music. So Feel Good is another song on the record. That's the oldest song that anyone will hear that I've written. I wrote that song in 2011 when I was on a prison tour. And it's mainly about my relationship with my dad. But that song literally, like, I wrote that entire song and it sat there. I just didn't stop thinking about it for years and years and years and years. And when it came time for the album, I was like, what about this? I actually hadn't written the bridge to that song. So that's what I wrote. Like, I randomly just reopened that song, and I wrote the bridge, and I was stoked on it, and I showed it to James Flanagan, and he loved it. And we went in, we recorded it, and it's such, like, whenever I pull out a song that I wrote that long ago, I sing it just in a different way, because it's, like, kind of just ingrained itself in me. And we sat down to do the vocal take for that, and we just did the whole vocal take all the way through, and, like... I like it was just flawless and James Flanagan was like that's the best vocal take I've ever heard you do and that's the one you hear on the song I then asked Matt to go a little deeper about how his faith plays into his music you know struggles with doubt you know you, you can't have faith without doubt specific lyrics I mean it's literally in, in, in every single song The Mask is a big one if you've heard that song that's about my uncle and like you know that was a big struggle too of like why why like my uncle basically was like a criminal growing up finally turned his life around really became like a church guy and trying to reach you know exactly what my parents do is go out and reach the people of the church deems as outcasts or whatever else and one of those dudes ended up killing him that was hard to figure out because i was like man why when he's like so you know on fire for jesus like why would like he let that happen so that's like something that i struggled with for a long time and that's something you hear come up in my music all of the time and then later on it became more about like if you listen to cringe like that's that's a lot about how i was treated when i started getting in trouble and started doing drugs and all of that and kind of fell out of church and all of that how they responded to that with you know more reprimanding me rather than trying to reach out and pull me back in and so that's where the whole phrase of do i make you cringe now like you know fuck you 
whatever. It kind of just pushes you and go easy is the same idea as it kind of just pushes you deeper in the hole and makes, you know, all the mistakes you made that much more attractive because it's a lot easier to do that again than to fix yourself when everybody's against you. Obviously, we've heard from Matt that he cares a lot and he really feels some deep passions. But starting your album with a song title like I Just Don't Care That Much kind of gives a different vibe. But here Matt explains it. We came to New York to do some press stuff and some writing sessions. And I wrote with some guy, I can't remember his name. And I left the session feeling very like jaded, very like... You know, when when you get put into a writing session and it's just like, if you put this guy that's good at writing songs together and this guy that's good at writing songs, they're going to make a super song. And that's just not how it works. And it feels very forced. And I never want my music to feel like that. And I had been in a ton of writing sessions before that, like in the six months prior to that, where I felt the same way and I was getting exhausted from it. And I was just thinking, man, if this is what this is, I, you know, I don't want it. I don't want to do that. And I went back to my A&R's apartment where I was staying and nobody was there. And I started writing with the thought of, you know, I just don't care that much. I don't care about writing the next hit. You know, that's not why I'm doing music. I'm not doing this for money or fame. I'm doing it because I want to write songs that make people feel understood and more so make me feel understood, you know, ways that I can write how I'm feeling and kind of, um, it's a therapeutic thing where I can write and say how I'm feeling. And I'm like, oh, wow, like that speaks to me. And so I was just like, yeah, you know what? I just don't care that much about any of this. All I care about is writing these kinds of songs. And then that song came out and like, I wrote that whole song in 30 minutes. The album closes with the dark, dark-toned song Bank on the Funeral, which Matt explains here. The song Bank on the Funeral, when I wrote that, it was like such an emotional song for me. I was just sitting in my bedroom. I hadn't written anything I really liked in a while, and I just sat there and wrote out that whole song, and it just like came out, and I was like, dang. And I was like, this is the album, the title track. It has a couple different meanings. So Bank on the Funeral, there were years of my life where I was super depressed and suicidal. And I was just like, there were nights that I just did so many drugs that like I just hoped I wouldn't wake up. You know, I mentioned earlier that my uncle uh, was killed when I was six. In his life, the way he lived his life and then the impact of his death shaped how I try to navigate my life and my career. And so I bank on that funeral, you know what I mean? And then now I'm at a point in my life where... I'm happier than I've ever been, and I have people around me that I really love, and there's people that love me. And so it's like I'm more scared of death than anything else, or scared of them dying than anything else. So it's more of a bank on the funerals, and I could check out any moment, so I'm going to try my best to live my life like as good as I can until I do. And so I wanted to just kind of express all of those different definitions throughout these different songs. My teeth are rotting away I've leathered on my skin And my blood is getting thin And my whole fucking character's changed I don't know who I used to be But it certainly isn't me Anymore and more I drink I am afraid That I'm just killing myself Got me fearing for my... Lastly, I wanted to talk to some of Matt's collaborators about what makes him unique. So here's Derek to talk about that. 
Yeah, I mean, his ba- he's got a, such an incredible backstory, and he's just the realest kid I've ever met. You know, growing up playing in biker rallies and prisons with his parents, uh, who ran a prison ministry, is a pretty incredible way to cut your teeth playing live shows. You just you hear it in the music. It's no bullshit. Like, and we we felt it in the A&R process. Like we we put Matt in the room with a lot of different writers, but all the best songs are the songs that Matt wrote 100% himself, and that's rare. You know, like that's when you know you've got the real deal. And so, you know, this record is really truly like Matt's purest expression at its purest form. And I can also like, you know, as someone who was putting Matt in a lot of these rooms, like it's now my turn to say that I was wrong and Matt was right, but that doesn't mean he was right. (laughs) Uh, It's been a really long road, but it's been an amazing journey and it's only just beginning. And here's James talking about what he thinks makes Matt unique. Matt, like, it's almost like, it's always cool to listen to Matt's story or any other stories he's got because it's really is a classic stranger than fiction situation. But Matt is so in touch with his, the, the combination of his his story, his background, his soul, and his lyrical vernacular are so intertwined. I've got complete faith that through all of his ups and downs, he's going to be creative and write great music. And it's one of my criteria as a producer, like that I work with someone that's got their own lyrical vernacular. Without that, we're really we're really struggling to paint a picture. And he paints such a vivid picture. Like throughout all the technical issues I have had, he made this just so easy by presenting himself in the room so transparently. And it's not through like um, music production rule that we decided to do the vocals first on all the songs. It's because that he pours his heart out so consistently and so honestly that a lot of these songs are one take it's the first take and we'll add a few bits here and there later on a lot of them are the fifth take and then we've gone back to the first take because he's just the most in the moment visceral kind of performer i've ever come across and that's just such a luxury. You just made my job like, now I'm suddenly taking credit for you. <laughs> I'm taking credit for this amazing thing that you've laid down, and I'm just going to follow. And that's when I feel really excited about an artist. Matt is one of those artists where his production and his sonics can change throughout the years, but I think people will recognize his personality as the thread. And that's a great position to be in, especially like when the world is so production heavy these days, especially in alternative music. He could do any project and that same energy and soul transfer. So it's a luxury and I'm really honored to work with this guy. Lover, come over. Look what I've done. I've been alone so long, I feel like I'm on the run. Lover, come over. Thank you for listening. You can find all the episodes of Inside the Album on your favorite podcast app. Matt Mason's Bank on the Funeral is out now. 